This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. Fifty years ago, David Bowie retired his alter ego Ziggy Stardust live on stage to a stunned audience and bandmates. Everybody. This is me, one of the greatest tours of our life, we really... Uh, of all the shows on this tour, this, this particular show will remain with us the longest, because not only is it, not only is it the last show of the tour, but it's the last show that we'll ever do. That moment and the entire performance was captured by documentary filmmaker D.A. Pennebaker. Now, that film, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, along with the soundtrack, have been restored and reissued as part of a 50th anniversary edition. Ziggy was one of Bowie's early gender-bending alter egos, mixing androgyny and science fiction. He wore elaborate eye makeup and lipstick and dyed his hair red. But even before Ziggy, Bowie had become an icon of glam rock after posing on the cover of his 1970 album, The Man Who Sold the World, wearing a gown and makeup. Bowie died in 2016 of cancer, just after his 69th birthday. He had a genius for reinventing his sound and his image. His best-selling music was a mix of funk, dance, and electronic, with influences of cabaret and jazz. Here's the title track from the new 50th anniversary restored version of the film. Gross spoke with Bowie in 2002 leading up to the 30th anniversary of the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. She asked him how he came up with the character of Ziggy. Well, I guess the simple one-liner is that uh, myself and my mates and uh, I guess a certain contingent of the musicians in in London at the uh, beginning of the 70s were fed up with denim and uh, the hippies. And I think we kind of wanted to go somewhere else. Uh, and some of us, I think, that us more pompous, arty ones, probably <laughs> <laughs> probably read too much George Steiner and kind of got the idea that uh, we were entering to this uh, kind of post-culture age. Uh, 
and uh, that we, we better do something postmodernist <laughs> quickly before somebody else did. So, um, so I, did you see the, the kind of um, gender aspects of your performance, you know, dressing, um, you know, sometimes wearing an evening gown, sometimes, uh, you know, often wearing lipstick, dyeing your hair, lots of eye makeup. <laughs> did you see the, the gender stuff as being a statement about postmodernism or a statement about sexuality? Well, neither. I think they were just devices um, to create this new distancing from the subject matter. There was a kind of a diffidence, uh, an idea that really hadn't been thought of before, that the history of rock could be recycled in a different way and brought back into focus without the luggage that comes along with it. It was a, a, a sense, a very strong sense of irony, um, I think, it became the foundation of... Two or three of us. I mean, the, I'm wary of the word glam because I think that became the all-inclusive term for any any bloke with lipstick on, which is fine, you know, and that's what it is when it comes down to the public level. The public, obviously, they take things in a very simplistic fashion, and sh so they should. That's why we have such wonderful television. Um, <laughs> you know, um, but... I think that, as I say, that what I, some, I guess it was you know kind of that that art school kind of posturing that 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 the Brits usually have, and it was I guess people like myself and and Roxy Music that had a different agenda about taking up music. I think we all were kind of well maybe I can't speak for Roxy of course, but some of us were failed artists or reluctant artists. Um, you know the choices were either for most Brit musicians at that point, painting or making music. And I think we opted for music, one, because it was more exciting, um, and uh, two, you could actually earn a living at it. Um, but I think we brought a lot of our sense, uh, aesthetic sensibilities to it in terms of that we wanted to manufacture a new kind of vocabulary, a new kind of currency. Um, and so the so-called gender bending, the uh, picking up of maybe aspects of the avant-garde and aspects of, for me personally, things like the Kabuki Theatre in Japan um, and expre German Expressionist movies and oh, uh, poetry by Baudelaire and... and uh, oh, God, it's so long ago now. Um, everything from uh, Presley to Edith Piaf went into this mix of, of this hybridization, this pluralism about what, in fact rock music was and could become. Uh, that wasn't really a very simple answer to anything at all, was it? No, Sorry but, it was, but it was a good answer. Well, <laughs> I, I, it was a pudding, you know. It really was a pudding. <laughs> it was a pudding of new ideas. And we were terribly excited, and I think we took it on our shoulders that we were creating the 21st century in 1971. That was the idea. And we wanted to just blast everything uh, in the past, rather like the Vorticists did at the beginning of the century in Britain, or the Dadaists did in uh, Europe. You know, there was the same sensibility of everything is rubbish, and all rubbish is wonderful. No, b before you became David Bowie, when you were, I mean, when you were working, <laughs> when, when you were playing with other bands before forming your own. Did you do the denim was... <laughs> thing? Do you know, did you wear a t-shirt and, and, and jeans on stage? Uh, very, very rarely, actually. No, it wasn't really something that I 
because I never believed it. It always felt like you were trying too hard to look like the audience or something. That whole thing about the artistic integrity, which, of course, I've never bought into with any artist. I, I, it's just not a real thing. Wait, so let me stop you and see if I got yeah. this right. Wearing a T-shirt and jeans seemed phony to you, <laughs> but yeah. wearing mascara and eye makeup seemed right. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, I didn't say that wearing a glamorization of the rock artist was any truer. Oh, okay, right. It's, it's artifice, but it's They're an both, artifice it's all that you artifice. believe in. Yeah, right. Yeah, that, that, okay, I think my main point would yeah. be is that the T-shirt and denims thing, in my mind, was also an artifice. Right. I didn't feel comfortable in that because I didn't feel like the like one of the working men. I mean, I could never be a blue collary kind of Springsteeny type artist because I don't believe I am that, and I don't believe I you know could ever represent that. And it is merely representation. What, what um, was your family background? I wonder. <laughs> uh, well, my father worked for um, a children's uh, home called Dr. Bernardo's Homes. They're a charity. I see. He was a charity worker, in fact. Uh, my mother was a, um, a housewife. Uh, both from... Well, my father was from a farming family, agricultural family in the north of England. And uh, my mother came from a very working class. Mm-hmm. What were you listening to when you were a teenager? Um, oh, wow. It was so... Uh, I think the only music I didn't listen to was country and western, and that holds to this day. Um, it's much easier for me to say that, 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 that the music I... The music, the kind of music I didn't listen to, was pretty much that. I mean, everything from from jazz to classical to popular, mm-hmm. uh, and Tibetan horns. I was a great part of it in nineteen sixty six, sixty seven. I love Tibetan horns. So I think Tibetan horns are one of the most wonderful sounds in the world, and Tibetan chanting. Uh-huh. It's great. I've read about something that I'm sure a lot of people have asked you about, which is that when you were 16, you were in a fight that blinded you in one eye and, and, and I think paralyzed the muscle. I have no idea, though, what happened in the fight. Did you typically get into a lot of fights when you were that age, or was this an unusual development? Uh, well, firstly, no, I was 13, not 16. Oh, okay. And uh, it was uh, my best friend hit me because I'd pulled his girlfriend. So I think probably had, in his mind he had every right to do that. And, and uh, yeah, how horrifying was it? The greatest thing, well, it was, it was uh, you know, very uncomfortable. <laughs> um, the best thing part of it, of course, is that we still remain very close friends. And I can't remember, it must be, what, 40 years later? And you, you lost the vision in that eye? Pretty much so, yeah. As, as, uh, as an artist, um, how has it been difficult to see what you want to see, to have full depth perception for for creating and for for looking. Um, <laughs> I probably I mean? take it. I probably take in more in one eye than most people do with two. So I think I'm all right. David Bowie speaking with Terry Gross in 2002. There's a new 50th anniversary edition of the concert film, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. 
Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. If you're a business owner, you know these sounds mean sales. And from the sound of it, your business is growing. Whether you're fulfilling orders from your home office or warehouse, Stamps.com helps you stress less about mailing and shipping and spend more time doing what you love most. Listening to ASMR. I mean, growing your business. But as you grow, so does the need for efficiency. Stamps.com simplifies your shipping and mailing process. Import orders from wherever you sell online. Find the lowest rates with the fastest delivery times. Instantly deliver tracking updates to your customers. And buy shipping and mailing supplies when you run low. Save time and money on mailing and shipping. Get started at Stamps.com today with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. This is Fresh Air. We're listening to Terry's 2002 interview with David Bowie. He had released the album Heathen. The concert film and soundtrack The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars has now been restored in a 50th anniversary edition. Here's another song from it. streets and every time I thought I got it made it seemed the taste was not so sweet then I turned myself to face me but I never caught a glimpse of how the others must see the faker I'm much too fast to take that test Back to Ziggy again, which is back in in, in theaters. Um, you know the the story of Ziggy Stardust is a story of uh, you know someone who becomes very famous. It's 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 the story of rock and roll fame. Becomes very famous, and then fame becomes his downfall. Um, he's kind of 
killed in a way by by fame. What did that fable that you created mean to you at the time? Is that the way you saw rock? Well, and I can fame? only look. I can only really look at it the way I look at it now, which is I think in de- uh, independently of myself, Ziggy Stardust has his own life, his his own creation, and you know what? Good luck to him. But frankly, for me, <laughs> I kind of. I kind of closed the door on him in 1973, and I'm very happy that he's having such success and that people still like him and all that. I heard he got married. Anyway, um, (laughs) I I personally have another life, you know, which doesn't belong to Ziggy Stardust, and I do tend to not really get that involved in what I've done in the past. Um, I do kind of leave that up to other people. And that's much how I feel about Ziggy. I kind of prefer the audience and uh, maybe writers or commentators or whatever to make what they will of the Ziggy Stardust period and character because it actually doesn't interest me much uh, now. (laughs) Is having an alter ego less important to you than it used to be? Um... I think much has been made of this alter ego business. I mean, I actually stopped creating characters in 1975, um, for albums anyway. The only time that I've adopted characterization again since that point for my own albums has been um, an album called Outside that I did with Brian Eno a few years ago, which really had a myriad, maybe one too many characters, but it had a lot of characters on that, and I played all the parts. But that was done as a sonic theatrical piece of music. Um, But the character thing really is sort of, uh, for me personally, rather ancient history. Uh, But it's kind of, I guess over here specifically in America, the soundbitey thing really kind of stays around and you're known by the... you're, You're defined by the two or three things that the largest amount of people know about. And that kind of is who you are publicly. And mine is really Ziggy Stardust, characters, let's dance. That's me in the American, (laughs) (laughs) frankly, in the American eye. But in fact, in Europe, I'm more kind of this bloke what writes lots of stuff. (laughs) And uh, I I kind of, um, I guess, you know, a, a greater number of the 26 or so albums that I've made are known in Europe than they are in America. Uh, your new CD was produced by Tony Visconti, who worked with you from your first album through... And myself. It was a co-production. Good. Thank you. Uh, from, from So he, you worked together from your first album through your 1980 album, Scary Monsters. What, how did you get hooked up to work again now? Well, um, we, we started talking about the possibility. I mean, we, we sort of reunited about five years ago. Um, and we had, since that point, been talking about the possibility of doing another album together um and i was the one that was really quite reticent about doing it because I'd, i i i'm very um i'm very aware of of how well thought of a lot of our earlier stuff is by the um, the audience for for those particular albums the things that we did in the 70s and early 80s and i didn't in any way want to cheapen or tarnish the the, the reputation that we had uh, so it took me a very very long time to figure out the way in to re-collaborating again. And it seemed to me that the best possible thing to do was take the emphasis off the production side of things and put it on quality and strength of songs. So I stockpiled or started stockpiling songs that I thought really were good sound pieces of work so that we went into the studio with a very definite um, 
end point in 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 view uh and it we really didn't have to lean back on the past at all how is your sense of yourself as a performer different now at the age of 55 <laughs> than it was when you were in your 20s and getting started and uh, being in, in, when when you were in persona and doing the whole you know eye makeup and dyed hair and dresses yeah. when you well, were that, that, that was for 18 months actually right which out of a, a career of nearly 40 years is not very long but, uh, however but, yeah. I'll answer your question I'm not actually a very keen performer um, I like putting shows together I like putting events together in fact everything I do is about the conceptualizing and realization of a piece of work whether it's the recording or the the, the performance side and kind of when i put the thing together I, I don't mind doing it for a few weeks but then quite frankly i get incredibly bored um because i don't see myself so much as a i mean i don't live for the stage I don't live for an audience. That can, can really I stop you and say that I'm really yeah. surprised to hear that? <laughs> Most people are. Yeah, because I, I always thought of you as some, somebody who really relished the theater aspect of performance and no. who very successfully made theater a, a part of music performance. I, frankly, if I could get away with not having to perform, I'd be very happy. It's not my favorite thing to do. I don't, as, I, as I say, I don't mind trying it out um, and making sure something seems to work well. But I really do rather want to move on because I think it's rather a waste of time endlessly singing the same songs every night for a year. And it's just not what I want to do. What I like doing is writing and recording and uh, much more on the, I guess, the uh, on that creative level. Um, it's fun interpreting songs and all that, but I wouldn't like it as a living. David Bowie talking with Terry Gross in 2002 a 50th anniversary edition of the film and soundtrack, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, has recently been restored and reissued. The film was made by the legendary film director D.A. Pennebaker, who died in 2019. Let's hear another of Bowie's hit songs. Half the time. 
grow up thinking of yourself as a singer, or did you um, start singing because you wanted to sing? You know, because you wanted to perform. No, I want. I start. What I wanted to do when I was nine years old, I wanted to be the baritone sax player in the Little Richard band. <laughs> I probably also wanted to be black at that particular time as well. Um, and I, so I, I got my father to help me out with a saxophone, and and. Uh, we bought it over like a two-year period. We had something in Britain then called the Higher Purchase System, or HP, and I bought it on HP, which is like you paid two and sixpence a week. Oh, buying like, it on time. Yeah, over like a thousand years. So in the end, it cost you maybe twice as much as if you could have afforded cash. Right. And uh, and I started playing around with local rock bands, you know, with the, with the alto, and then... In a nutshell, somebody fell ill one night, the lead singer in one of the bands, and they, and they knew I could sing, so they asked me if I would stand up. And I quite enjoyed it, actually, I must say, at 14. Um, it was a real trip, you know, to have girls wave at you and smile and everything just because you opened your mouth and sang. Um, and uh, But really, I guess, but no, I really wanted to do more than anything else up until I was around 16, 17, was write musicals. Was write music. Uh, musicals. Oh, musicals. I really wanted to write musicals. That's what I wanted to do more than anything else. And it kind of, and because, but because I like rock music, I kind of moved into that sphere, somehow thinking that somewhere along the line I'd be able to put the two together. And I suppose I very nearly did with the, with the Ziggy character, but I had such short attention span and got disinterested so quickly after I'd created some kind of project that I wanted to move on. And I never really got these, the book together for the thing. So I had all the songs and the characters. But by the time we'd gotten it on the road and I'd been doing it for 18 months, oh, God, I couldn't wait to move on to something else. So when you say you wanted to write musicals, did you want to write, like, Rodgers and Hart kind of musicals or Hair? I mean, what... <laughs> no, that was what my was... point. No, yeah. my point was I wanted to rewrite how rock music was perceived. Oh, I and see. I yeah, thought right. that I could do some kind of vehicle involving rock musicals right. and presenting rock and characters and storyline in a completely different fashion. Mm -hmm. um, so it was was singing something you started doing to come so 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 that you could do that kind of theater. It was um, well. It was the conception that I mean. God, I would love to have handed it on to somebody else, and I guess Ziggy would have been the perfect vehicle to have done with. I don't know why, to this day, I didn't find some other kid after I'd done it for like six months and said, "Ew, I'll put the wig on," and send him out and do the gigs. You know, I mean, it would have been much the best thing to do, and then I could have moved on quicker to something else. But but that comes back to what I was saying. I needed to sing because nobody else was singing my songs. Right. So I had to do it myself. You were briefly in a, a mime group before... Um, yes, the Lindsay Kemp Mime Company. Yeah, before becoming a, a solo musician. Yeah. Um, well, actually, well, it, it all kind of ran... I, I tended to be... Uh, I seem to be kind of involved in so many things all at the same time, which is still how I kind of operate today. I just I can't keep my fingers out of any pies. Well, are there things that you... Um, learned or became aware of through that mime group that you said, yeah, that I really like that. I'm going to, I'm going to, oh, I'm think, going to work I with think, that in my own performances. I think everything that I learned about stagecraft um, and and carrying through, a ca creating a through point for a, a theatrical device. Uh, I think uh, Lindsay Kemp really introduced me to the work of Jean Genet, and and through that, um, 
I kind of kept re-educating myself about other um, prose writers and, and poets. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, he, he instigated, he opened an awful lot of doors for me in terms of a new approach to what I could do. I could never have done what I did without being in, uh, involved with Lindsay Kemp's company. Um, While we're on the subject of mime, I, ha- mime, I have yeah. to mention that in, in the Ziggy movie, you do do those hands walking across the glass wall oh, yeah. thing. <laughs> I know. That's my proudest moment of the Ziggy Stardust movie. The dreaded mime thing. <laughs> yeah. What well, meme over meme. here, isn't it? <laughs> I know. It's so utterly abhorred over here. <laughs> I, you know, we didn't know that in England because we love it over there. <laughs> and uh, it broke our hearts when we came over here and realised that memes were kind of a tantamount to some kind of artistic <laughs> criminals. Because rock and roll started as a youth mu- music, everybody always wondered, well, will rock and roll continue to live? And what about the artists themselves? What about when they pass 30? What about when they pass 40? Or when they pass 50? Is that an issue for you? Um, do you, Do you feel like you have... Um, satisfactorily found a way to be um, a man in his mid-50s playing your music without feeling like what you're playing is... You know what I'm saying. That well, uh, that you're playing I, music I that speaks to who you yeah. are and where you are it's, now. Um, having not really written any generational songs, I think maybe two or three of the songs that I've ever written have any bearing on the age of the listener my stuff tends to be far more concerned with the spiritual and with um, subjects like isolation and being miserable so i think that sort of touches on really any age group so in in my terms they're just songs Uh, the vehicle for those songs is a music that did indeed start as a, a, a youth culture music but it is aged well in itself. Um, no, it's just it's just what I do. I mean, I wouldn't know how to write and play any other kind of music, frankly. David Bowie, thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. David Bowie speaking with Terry Gross in 2002. He died in 2016. The film and soundtrack The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars has been restored and reissued in a 50th anniversary edition. Time takes a cigarette, puts it in your mouth, pull on your finger, then another finger, then your cigarette, while the wall-to-wall is calling, it lingers, but still you forget, you are rock and roll suicide. You're too young to lose it But you're too old to lose it And the clock waits so patiently on your song Well, you walk past the cafe But you can't eat when you've lived too long Oh, 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 oh. you're a rock and roll suicide now the ship breaks the snarling As you stumble across the room But the day breaks instead So you hurry home Don't let the sunlight blast your shadow Don't let the milk flow bind your mind They're so natural 
Coming up, Lloyd Schwartz reviews a new collection of Verdi's opera choruses. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Be My Guest with Ina Garten, a podcast from Food Network. Intimate and captivating conversations with new and old friends. Jennifer Garner, Frank Bruni, Emily Mortimer, and more. Listen to Be My Guest wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep at night. Mattress Firm's sleep experts receive 200-plus hours of training annually to help you get your best rest. Upgrade your sleep with a Tempur-Pedic mattress made with a -a one-of-a-kind, infinitely adaptable temper material for exceptional support to help alleviate aches and pains. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Our classical music critic Lloyd Schwartz has a review of a new album devoted to Verdi opera choruses. Lloyd reminds us that there's more to opera than just the typical aria, trio, or quartet. That was a clip of one of the most popular tunes Verdi ever wrote. It's not an aria, a trio, or a quartet, but a chorus, the anvil chorus from Verdi's opera Il Trovatore, The Troubadour. Music lovers familiar with Verdi's Requiem know that it includes some of the most magnificent and terrifying choral music ever written. But Verdi's operas also have some amazing passages for the chorus. Not music for the central characters, but for groups who are either trying to affect the action, like the witches in Verdi's version of Macbeth, or the crowds who are responding to previous action, like the Egyptians in Aida celebrating their victory over the Ethiopians, or the dispossessed Hebrews in Verdi's Nabucco, Nebuchadnezzar longing for their distant homeland. Now the brilliant opera conductor Riccardo Chailly, music director of La Scala in Milan, has put together an exciting new album of choruses from Verdi's operas, his best known as well as his most obscure. When Nabucco was first performed in 1842, Va Pensiero, the chorus of enslaved Hebrews, immediately became an anthem for the unification of Italy. Audiences insisted on encores. They still do. Shai's recording with the La Scala Chorus and Orchestra is the most affecting version I've ever heard. It begins so quietly, 
as if the thoughts of the enslaved Hebrews were lifting into the air, as the libretto says, on wings of gold. The climax is a full-hearted lament for my country, so beautiful and so lost. Verdi's music for Il Trovatore is so tuneful, we tend to forget about the words. But the libretto by Salvatore Camerano is actually very poetic. In the anvil chorus, the Spanish Roma workers awake to see the sun melting away the dark clouds of night. They pound their anvils and sing about the pleasures of wine and women brightening their day. After the boisterous opening, it's almost a shock to hear Shai diminishing the volume of the singing to a whispered wonderment. Chai helps us rediscover the impressive variety of Verdi's choral music, from the comic to the extremely solemn, as well as Verdi's imaginative use of the orchestra. In this chorus of witches from Macbeth, a much larger cohort than Shakespeare's cackling threesome, the orchestra does almost more than the voices to convey their sinister intent. Maybe the most complex among these choruses is the large-scale scene from Don Carlo 
in which the festivity surrounding the coronation of King Philip is interrupted and subverted by the grim voices of the Inquisition, dooming the so-called heretics to be burned at the stake. of his operas painted with a different tincture, and he embodied their distinct coloration at least as vividly for his choruses as for his characters. Hearing this great range of Verdi choruses on a single album, all performed with such power and subtlety, is truly a revelation. Lloyd Schwartz is Poet Laureate of Somerville, Massachusetts. His latest book is Who's On First? New and Selected Poems. He reviewed the album Verdi Choruses, conducted by Ricardo Shayi on the DECA label. Coming up, Justin Chang reviews the new comedy Bottoms. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the official Hacks podcast from Max. Join the creators and showrunners of Hacks as they discuss each episode and speak with the cast and crew about the making of the series. Listen to the official Hacks podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? No matter what might be keeping you up, Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep. Mattress Firm will find you the right mattress from a wide selection of top brands at every budget. Plus, if you see a lower price somewhere else, they'll match it up to 120 nights with their low price guarantee. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See mattressfirm.com or store for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. In the high school comedy Bottoms, which opens in theaters this week, two longtime best friends start a fight club for girls as a ruse to hook up with cheerleaders. It's the latest movie directed by Emma Seligman after their feature debut, Shiva Baby, and it stars the film's lead, Ayo Edebiri from The Bear and Rachel Sinnott. Our film critic Justin Chang has this review. High school is often hell in the movies, much as it can be in real life. But I can't recall a vision of high school as specific in its hellishness as the one in the very funny and sometimes surreal new comedy, Bottoms. It's about two queer best friends, PJ and Josie, who are unpopular not because they're gay, but because they are, in their own words, gay, untalented, and ugly. Both girls want to lose their virginity before they head off to college, a goal that places them roughly in line with the horny male protagonists of various teen sex comedies 
ranging from Porky's to Superbad. In its own self-aware way, Bottoms is clearly riffing on those earlier movies, and many others, from that dark coming-of-age classic, Heathers, to the queer-themed cult hit, But I'm a Cheerleader. The title that gets the most explicit shout-out, however, is Fight Club. After a bizarre series of mishaps and misunderstandings at a school fair, PJ and Josie develop an unearned reputation for physical violence, and they realize they can turn this to their advantage by starting a self-defense club for girls, in light of recent disturbing incidents around campus. PJ, played by Rachel Sennett, is particularly enthused, since she thinks a fight club will improve their chances of meeting girls, like the two cheerleaders, Brittany and Isabel, that they're smitten with. But Josie, played by Ayo Adebri, is conflicted about the idea, which she thinks makes them nearly as bad as the male predators they'd be fighting back against. They argue over it in this scene with their sort of friend, Hazel, played by Ruby Cruz. I can't believe they're letting you guys start a fight club. No, they're, they're not. We are not. What are you talking about? We're going to do it. We're doing it. PJ, I wasn't being serious. Josie, did you see the way that Isabel and Brittany were looking at us? <sighs> also, you heard the announcements. Girls are terrified. It's perfect. They need this. Okay, no, they need, like, mace, maybe. We can't do that, okay? We'd be misleading them. Guys do that all the time, okay? That's the point of feminism. That's not the point of feminism. You also don't care about feminism. Your favorite show is Entourage. You're missing the point. I don't really think I am. We don't know how to fight. You guys probably fought girls in juvie. No, we were lying about that, obviously. <laughs> about juvie? Yeah, I mean, Why what? would you lie to me? You were the one who said we went to juvie. I just didn't correct you. Listen, self-defense isn't instinctual common sense. You try to punch me in the face, I stop it from happening. Whatever, I don't care, it's easy. The funny thing is, it is pretty easy, at least at first. Brittany and Isabel, well played by Kaya Gerber and Havana Rose Lou, are among the dozen or so girls who join the club. They all meet in the school gym, and apart from the occasional bruised face or cut lip, the fighting doesn't get too over the top initially. The girls may learn to throw and take a punch, but they also experience a newfound sense of solidarity. Against all odds, this violent arena also becomes a safe space. But if Bottoms is very much a comedy of female empowerment, it also skewers its own feminism, with laughs that catch and sometimes die in your throat. The director Emma Seligman, who wrote the script with Senate, treats even taboo subjects with a deadpan matter-of-factness. There are flippant jokes about sexual assault, eating disorders, suicide, and school bombings. Hazel turns out to have some skill with homemade explosives. It's the mix of teenage psychological realism and Looney Tunes comic exaggeration in Bottoms that keeps you off balance. Laughter, it suggests, is the only sane response to an insanely violent world. The main antagonist here is the school's star quarterback, a rich, entitled bully who's dating and cheating on Isabel. Jocks make pretty standard movie villains, but Bottoms gets at something deeper. There's a real undercurrent of rage here at the mindless football worship that holds sway at so many high schools, to the exclusion of everyone and everything else. It may be a sly joke, then, that one of the best performances here is given by former NFL star-turned-actor Marshawn Lynch. A big-screen natural, Lynch plays a well-meaning history teacher who wants to be a good mentor and ally to these girls, but whose pesky ingrained misogyny keeps popping up 
at inopportune moments. The movie doesn't always sustain its comic momentum, and I wish some of the other girls in the Fight Club had more screen time. But the core of Bottoms is rock solid. This is the second feature collaboration between Seligman and Sennett, after their terrifically cringy dark comedy, Shiva Baby. It's also the latest collaboration for Sennett and Edebury, after their digital series, Io and Rachel are single. And their BFF rapport feels authentic, even in the most outlandish of circumstances. The two play off each other beautifully and unpredictably. PJ may seem like the bolder, unrulier one at first, but it's the more sensible-minded Josie who ends up pushing the comedy in wild new directions, especially when Isabel starts to return her feelings. Yes, Bottoms is a love story, too, and a disarmingly sweet one. It's a merciless comic pummeling that winds up feeling like a hug. Justin Chang is the film critic for the Los Angeles Times. He reviewed the new comedy Bottoms. On Monday's show, we kick off our week-long celebration of the 50th anniversary of hip-hop with three pioneers, DJ Cool Herc, Grandmaster Flash, and Melly Mel. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support from Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Charlie Kyer. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the NPR Wine Club. NPR Wine Club members have contributed over $1.5 million to helping create a more informed public. B21. Join the charge at nprwineclub.org slash podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey. I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR.